In a world where coaches are still the main characters, the players are now legally chasing the ultimate bag, and the game of basketball is always the top priority, there is only one brand you can trust to help you wade through all the madness. Hey, I'm Tate Frazier from One Shining Podcast, and you can join me twice a week as we navigate the always entertaining world of college basketball. Every Monday, The Ringer's Kyle Man helps me make sense of the biggest stories from the weekend, and on Fridays, we talk to our many friends of the program. We're locked in on the best postseason in sports. Make sure you follow One Shining Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. David? Yes? We got a lot to catch up on, buddy. Oh, yeah? A lot of media during our wellness week. A lot of stuff. And I want to start with a tweet from Ben Smith of Semaphore. This kind of perked up my ears. Ben tweets, quote, everybody is hiring media reporters these days. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Hmm. I got that same feeling as when I'm walking through my house and I smell someone cooking a grilled cheese sandwich <laughs> over in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I get excited. I smell an instant think piece. Oh, that's it. Uh, what else could it be? What are you thinking, Brian? Well, why is everybody hiring media reporters these days, David? Well, first, we have to have three data points to justify the existence of the think piece. And I'll give them to you right here. Sports media guys, Andrew Marchand and John Arand have changed publications, Mm -hmm. upgrading in both cases. Bloomberg is hiring a media reporter. Mm. The New York Times is trying to hire a media reporter. After Jeremy Peters decided to stop writing lousy profiles of Dana Perino and move to a new beat. So those are our data points. And then we get to the reasons, David. Why are people looking to hire people like us? (laughs) Reason number one is the media beat is on fire. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean that in the NBA jam sense of the term. I mean that in the someone is committing arson sense of the term. (laughs) Just since you and I have been away, there's been sadness at Vice, at Engadget, at BuzzFeed. I've sort of lost track of the times people have used the term extinction level event. Yeah. In their own think pieces about what's going on. It seemed like a a kind of sad but snazzy way to put it early on in this horrific news cycle, but now it's become the control plus V AI text. Yeah. That you find in every column. Reason number two would be the Trump era mm-hmm. when media people became players in the big game. We'll talk about this here a little bit more in a second, but we are still dealing with this idea that the media is either costing Joe Biden the election or from the other side, often from the former president himself, the media is costing Donald Trump the election. Yeah. Also, there's a lot more. I mean, I guess TV news is its own separate thing, but a lot more um, 
sort of identity-driven journalism, not driven journalism, but there's a lot more personalities in journalism in the Trump era, right? There's pe people have interactions with Trump and they get famous, you know, they get there, they get more notoriety from that. So, you know, the average media consumer cares, uh, you know, positively or negatively about so-and-so reporter because of their connection to political figures. Could we also say to your point that more people have become quote unquote media people in the Trump era mm. since he's not only having interactions with Maggie Haberman, he's having interactions with this podcast guy yeah, or this guy who has a Twitter show. Mm -hmm. So the whole category is much bigger and there's more people to cover than there yeah. ever has been before, which was happening anyway with the way the world was changing. Reason number three for you Startup publications like Semaphore and Puck have put a big emphasis on media news. Mm -hmm. When you're starting something, that's a really good way to get attention. Yeah. Because you get other journalists reading you. You get other journalists tweeting about the stuff they read on your website. Yeah, that's really smart. Some might call it cheap heat. <laughs> but it's the stuff we read, the stuff we enjoy. And then reason number four for me is I think the media beat has undergone the same very strange transformation that the NBA and NFL beats have gone undergone. There you, you go. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. The transaction has become the main course. Mm -hmm. And this has always been the case. You go back to Bill Carter and, you know, Ken Aletta and guys who were doing this back in the eighties, they were always interested in the comings and goings of star reporters and, network executives and people like that. Mm -hmm. But dude, when I read stories and I'm like, wow, I'm reading about ABC news president, Kim Godwin over and over and over, mm -hmm. but I'm not actually reading about anything that's happening on ABC news. <laughs> yes. So the same trick has happened that happened in the NBA, which is like, I'm not actually talking about what these people are doing on the court as much as I'm talking about whether they're up or down, whether they're about to be kicked out, whether they're in, whether they're going for another job. Sure. And that's what the, you know, and consumers can read an article by somebody or whatever and not think about that person. But then they see an article where it's like Brian Curtis is fired and they're like, yeah, that guy, that guy deserves it. They don't care about having <laughs> Brian Curtis, they don't even notice your byline when they click on your columns on Twitter or whatever, you know, but that's that, that they still care in terms of just comings and goings. The Chris Licht thing seemed to be an early version of that, but that was at least about the values of CNN mm -hmm. and the values of media more broadly during Trump and then post the post Trump eras. Mm hmm. But some of these I'm just like, I what was the one the other day. Was it James Brown had re-signed his contract? to host the NFL today for CBS. I'm like, can you show me your James Brown content that happened between the signing of this contract and the signing of the last contract? Mm -hmm. Can you show me the story you've written about just the special way that he has to host the NFL today? Yeah. <laughs> or do we just care when he re-signs his contract? Is that when we're engaging? No, no offense to James Brown, of course, but funny how that works. It's true. All right, David, coming up on today's transaction-free show, the New York Times columnist Ezra Klein is using his platform to try to muscle Biden off the Democratic ticket, what it means for the POTUS and the columnist. Plus, David and I wish a happy farewell to Peter King, uh, an unhappy farewell to the employees of Vice, and we ponder the return of the I can't look away from it first-person essay or why we like to read about someone handing $50,000 to a stranger in a car. Mm. All that and much more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Well, hello again, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, and producer Brian Waters here. I want to talk to you, David, first about Ezra Klein. Yeah. What I am contractually obligated to call the Ezra Klein heat check. <laughs> I was looking through my employment contract. It, it says you must call this a heat check. If someone is feeling their oats and Ezra Klein is absolutely feeling his oats in the New York times these days. 
For the uninitiated, Ezra Klein was part of the bloggers who were invading the media sphere and the aughts and came to be known as the Juice Box Mafia. And am I correct in remembering that that was one of those terms that was used as a pejorative by the writers who were clinging to power, clinging to their columns, and then became kind of a term that was embraced by the juice boxers themselves? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. This was Ezra. This was Matthew Iglesias. And within the mafia, Ezra was the smart, respectable, and respectful explainer yeah. of liberal issues, right? Mm-hmm. He was the guy you could look at and be like, that guy is going to be in a big role at a big publication one day. Yeah. I mean, certainly he had the profile of somebody with a giant future. Uh, I would say if anything, he was, you know, if you're, if you're just prognosticating, you would say maybe he's a little bit, he's going to be a little bit held back by the fact that he's not following like a super traditional path. And I, I don't, I mean that he had the temperament of almost of like an editor or an ombudsman, you know, instead of being a partisan, instead of being a talking head, instead of being an opinion columnist. Now, certainly he wrote his fair share of op-eds, but they were more explanatory, right? I mean, he wasn't following a path that seemed like a conventional path right in that moment. But of course, as we know, it became a huge piece of the way we consume news just to kind of... uh the explainer culture. If we had a model of a columnist who was a bomb thrower, that was Iglesias. Ezra, he would probably, say, he would was, disagree, but yes, I think, yeah, I, I mean, certainly. Would he really disagree? Would he really disagree that he's being provocative and trying to provocative pull people yeah, in different yeah, yeah, ways? I would say provocateur more than a flamethrower, but sure. You think X, but let me convince you not in a first take kind of way, but in a here are my values about politics kind of way, why why is really a better idea. I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that explains him fairly well. Sure. Whereas as you say, Klein was more interested in explanation. Yeah. Reaching out to people, doing those kind of podcast interviews, which he goes from blogdom to the Washington Post. He co-founds Vox, which is very much in his friendly wonky image. And then he finally goes to the New York Times, the ultimate real estate for any columnist. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting last week to hear him when he writes this column slash podcast, it appeared in both forums, say this about people he knew would be listening to his show. I want to say this clearly. I like Biden. I think he's been a good president. I think he is a good president. I don't like having this conversation. And I know a lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats are going to be furious at me for this show. And that was so revealing to me, David. Again, to go go to that mindset we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. I know people will be mad when they hear this. And what they'll be mad about was that Klein was arguing in this podcast slash column that Joe Biden should step aside. Yeah. That he should not run for president in 2024. I guess stop running for president in 2024. Fascinating move for a guy who has never pushed his journalistic chips to the center of the table in quite that way. Mm -hmm. And you had to know before he wrote that, as that clip indicates, that he's like, this isn't just going to be a, hey, I got an opinion about the election. Here's here's an idea I'm floating out there. He knows that's going to be perceived as New York Times columnist podcaster Ezra Klein's opinion. Mm-hmm. the journalistic establishment's opinion and the opinion of a columnist that the white house clearly reads and talks to. Yeah. I mean, think about the mindset of that dude pushing it all in for really the first time, at least at that level mm-hmm. to say Biden should step aside. What did you make of that? I mean, I think there's a, there's a part of me that thinks, why is this so hard? Right. Like, why isn't this your job? Like, why why would this be so hard? But actually reading the piece and listening to part of it, you do understand it. Right. I mean, it, it there it's not just the personal 
I think it's easy to focus on the personal aspect of it and just be like, well, so what? That's your job. But it is, uh, it, I mean, it, but, but, it, but there, it is a really loaded decision. It is a very, I mean, to, 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 even people who don't deal with things of this magnitude have to decide, you know, if you're a tech columnist or a video game columnist or something, you're like, well, is now the time to push a so-and-so button? Even if it's not a, 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 a you know, a world-altering thing. Well, this column might have more relevance in three months if I wait for something to happen. You know, whatever. There's a lot of, there's a lot of conditionals that go into these kind of decisions. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty big one. And I think it's, I think that it's, you know, a conversation that a lot of liberals are having, even if they don't want someone of Ezra Klein's stature to be making this case out loud. This is a conversation that a lot of people are having. And it, and it, I think his uh, sort of equivocation, the way that, the fact that he admits to that thought process, I think makes the argument even more powerful, you know? And he's not, as we said, a, a bomb thrower. This is a, this is, I mean, in some ways, this is very much an explainer, right? <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a very measured argument and that's kind of what gives it its power. I was thinking about people in the media establishment who, whose call for Biden to step aside would have more impact than this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain, most people on TV really aren't in the position to do it. And somebody like David Axelrod, the Biden people are already pissed off at him anyway for various things he said about their, about their campaign skills and their campaign strategies over the years. So he's out. And I was just trying to think of, you know, somebody who could be it. Like Jonathan Chait has, again, there's somebody who 100% the white house reads. He's flirted with this idea about Biden before and the coronation of Biden without a real primary, mm-hmm. but I can't come up with a name, you know, a David Brooks, no, right? We I mean, know definitely a Biden not favorite. but yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, it seems like that it's it it does feel like that there is there is not always a neat intersection between people with that have the ear of a White House or a campaign and the pertinent parts of their voting base. Right. A lot of times the I mean for various reasons, the campaigns will give internally give outsized influence to you know, whichever New York Times columnist or going back in the day to the New Republic columnists or writers and stuff, you know, and that's not that's not necessarily a reflection of the big parts of their voting block. But um, Ezra Klein is kind of as 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 much of a crossover as you could kind of imagine. Uh, I, I don't I don't think there's anybody else unless you define it, start to define media really loosely. Um You know, I mean, there's certainly been calmness with that kind of power. I can't think specifically of the Joe Biden administration, who on earth, who else that would be. But in the past, there were writers like Tanahasi Coates or Andrew Sullivan or someone that just would have like a, a whole lot of power if they made some sort of like incredible stand like that. But even then, I mean, those uh, were people who wrote in different ways than Ezra Klein does. And it, I think that his sort of generally measured approach is what makes this carry so much weight. What was funny too, about reading the podcast and the column was you say, okay, he's making the case that Biden step aside. Then you think, well, okay, well, who is, what is his solution here? Who is the person who should pick up the baton for the Democrats? And then Ezra said this. Let's say Biden ultimately agrees and steps aside. Then what? Well, the Democrats do something that used to be common in politics, but hasn't been in decades. They pick their nominee at the convention. I smiled, David, when I heard that. Mm-hmm. Because now we've gone from this somewhat heretical act to the ultimate fantasy of everyone who has ever written about politics. Yeah. A brokered convention. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to Chicago in August. We're going to get J.B. Pritzker. We're going to get Gavin Newsom. We're going to get Kamala Harris. I'm going to finally get the term smoke filled back room into my copy. Oh yeah. And really have it be a smoke filled back room or maybe Mm -hmm. a vape filled back room where these decisions are being made. So we went from something that is unconventional, at least unconventional in the Klein universe to the most conventional fantasy you could absolutely imagine. 
Mm-hmm. We're, we're finally gonna do it, dude. That broken well, convention. Sorry, the most conventional fantasy. Like you had those two yeah. things have to be conjoined, right? And this and is by the way, is, pun firmly intended in conventional fantasy, but go yes, ahead. Right. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> true. No, this is the sort of thing that you I mean, I, every time the brokered convention comes up, I just sort of roll my eyes. Because it is, it's just a thing that politics nerds glom onto. Uh it very rarely is is promoted in any sort of real rational way. And I think at the end of the day, maybe more than anything else, just the political component of it just seems just totally ill-conceived, right? Just because you're so interested in something like this doesn't mean that it wouldn't just confuse the hell out of every voter and, and almost necessarily <laughs> tank the election. Uh, yes, so. he he has reasons for this, right? Well, like this is the Democrats making their best choice, putting their best foot forward, as happened at brokered conventions of yore. Mm-hmm. But you can feel it in there, and you can feel it for everybody who's ever wished for one of these. It's like the reason people want it is because it's exciting. Yeah, it would be fascinating to cover. And it feels like something that was denied to you by being a political reporter in recent times rather than the olden times. Mm-hmm. We weren't riding on the bus with Jack Germond. So we didn't get to go to a brokered convention. We had to go to these stage managed conventions, which are just TV shows. What if we could go to one where everything was really on the line? Before we leave this topic, do you want to talk about the Biden age stuff? which is part of Klein's column. So Klein's to, to be clear, his argument is not that Joe Biden can't do the job of being president of the United States. His job, his argument is that Joe Biden is not up to the job of campaigning to be president of the United States or campaigning to be reelected. And that should show to tell you what kind of heresy this is, right? This is not, I'm throwing the president aside because I don't believe in him anymore. This is, I just want the Democrats to win and have a better chance of winning. Yeah, I'm this not sure been, that there's much of a distinction. Well, I mean, okay, I guess there is a distinction, right? I mean, he, if he can, he, yes, if, if you are competent at being president uh, you can, and continue to be competent at being president, but for some very, you know, whatever reason, can't do the whole campaign. But there's no, I guess what I mean is that what's the point of arguing about his skills as a president if he cannot be elected as president, right? I mean, it's obviously an incredibly calculated decision that, I mean, to, to decide that, that I, Joe Biden, and I'm speaking, you know, first person president here, I, Joe Biden, and the best hope at defeating Donald Trump, at saving America, whatever the argument is. Uh, obviously, my age is, a, is, is going to be a huge issue. Um, but the, the odds are just so significantly better, even despite that, that, for me to win, as opposed to just literally anybody else in the field that it's worthwhile. Well, at some point, if you're going to be fact, I mean, if you're, if you're really measuring it and I'm not saying that they are, but if you're really measuring that out, other things have to come into play too. I mean, the narrative is really spun out of control about the age, right? I mean, it's, it is, it is. And honestly, we might even look back and say the Super Bowl, the lack of a Super Bowl interview was, was a tipping point, which is nuts to think about. I didn't really think deep th- twice about it at the time at all. Is but, it nuts to think from what we're doing from a media perspective or from Biden just passing up on that and allowing one more data point to creep into that discussion? I think that, well, both, but particularly the second. I think that it's th- that that it's a really tangible data point, right? That every whatever, every every voter can say to another voter, he didn't even do the Super Bowl interview. And that and that has very con- very concrete resonance, right? In a way that saying he hasn't been doing that much media, he hasn't been, you know, his, his number of press avails is down, like whatever. Like this is just a very, even if it's even if it weren't true, it's a very tangible thing, right? Um, and I mean, listen, I was talking to my wife about this just yesterday. I, my general feeling about the election hasn't changed. I think this is, it's going to come down to I me. Mean, I'm going to be proven so wrong, but I think this is going to come down to a thousand people in Pennsylvania, no matter like we can slice and dice this and cover it a million ways. I think it's going to come down to a thousand people in Pennsylvania. Uh, 
I think that those thousand people could be really swayed by the issue, by the by, by the age issue, you know. And I think that um, Donald Trump being omnipresent, as kooky as he is, is is uh, is clearly immune to any questions about his age, and to some extent, justifiably so. And um, but I think that the bigger issue now, separate from age, is is a factor that they you know that that normally goes the other way but it's the issue of incumbency and i think there's a lot of there's a lot of questions but now particularly with 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 the war in palestine that where incumbency is really going to hurt joe biden and the thousand people who are going to make this decision on this election uh are either going to stay home or you know be swayed in another direction so i i i think that I don't know. I mean, I can understand going back to Ezra Klein how difficult this argument is to make. How 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 difficult the, the calculus is for him because knowing how many people are going to be upset with him. But I don't think he's the only one having the thought with this level of 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 series of gravity at this moment. I'm fascinated to see on the question of age how two mindsets are conflicting at once. There is a mindset that tells you, look, this is a binary election right? It's democracy continues or democracy is in peril. Those are the two outcomes after November here. Mm -hmm. So that merely by talking about age, by trying to get but her emails part two, by letting this float to the top of the New York Times page, even New York Times homepage, even for a second, you are, you are doing it wrong, right? You are doing a disservice to your readers. The media is misleading people, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's this journalist mindset that says, and you heard Estet Hernan talking about this on the podcast a week yeah. ago, saying, of course, we're going to talk about this. Of course, we're going to investigate this. Like, no, it is not the same as January 6th. No, it's not. We, it's, it's our job to put everything in context. But of course, this is a valid thing to talk about, mm -hmm. right? Use your, I, we, you and I have talked about on this podcast before. As soon as you stop using your eyes and ears as a journalist, you're really screwed, Right. So you are watching Joe Biden talk at a press conference. You're watching Joe Biden give a stump speech. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean he can't discharge his duties. That doesn't mean he's incapable of being president, but it is certainly something that is worth talking about. Yeah, I think that there's a real tension, and this is what we keep coming back to between talking about. About, you know, you talk about January, you mentioned January 6th. I mean, they're they're political conversations about ideology, about the way that someone will govern, about whatever else that shouldn't be in the same, necessarily in the same conversation as electability arguments, right? I think that that line is increased, has been increasingly blurred over the past couple of decades in terms of the way we talk about it. And I certainly think that the Trump years have done nothing but just, just turn the blur into a full on, you know, goulash. But, um, but yeah, I mean that. But uh, said is right. I mean, of course we're going to talk about it. Of course we're going to talk about it. And and I think that the way that it becomes more of a legitimate, I guess if that's the word, line of argument, a more concrete uh, line of questioning is the way that it reflects on the decision making of the campaign in the White House in on a, in a broader way, right? I mean, do we like? Why are we making the decisions like this? Do we really not? Are we really going to like insult the public into think in, in, by insisting that this is not an issue, you know? And and if it's not, and and if we really believe it's not an issue, why are we not addressing it? Like the, it just seems, it, it you you just if if you're not actually worried about his age, you're st you still have to be worried about the response. Yeah, and this this came up in Klein's column. Joe Biden has done fewer than a hundred interviews. Klein writes since being president. That's less than a fourth as many as, as Barack Obama did and a third as many as Donald Trump did in their first administrations. Okay. What is the liberal case for not doing interviews? This is where I feel like we can make some common ground even between these mindsets, right? That are very, that are both valid, but are very different, right? Mm -hmm. Journalist mindset person who just wants Joe Biden to win the presidency and doesn't want Donald Trump to win again. This is the mindset. What is the liberal case for not talking to the press? Because yeah. there are certainly questions that Democrats want to hear from Joe Biden about, right? There mm -hmm. are questions about the war in Gaza, which you mentioned. There are questions about immigration. There are questions about his second term, about defeating Trump, about all these kinds of things. What's the case for that? 
right? This, this it doesn't. Be, it, this... It, do, it doesn't make a very compelling case for saving America from the end of democracy when you're not willing to get out there and make the case, right? Yeah, I mean, well, you make not... it to Conan O'Brien, you know, and not a, and not a journalist. So okay, but anyway, that's. That's all I have to say. I know we're now we're going to get everybody angry at us, but that's what I would say. Like, if we want to make common cause here, do interviews. This is a value that I will I will extend to every politician, no matter what their party is. We want you to mm-hmm. talk to the press more. We want you to talk more. All right, coming up in thirty seconds, David, an adieu haiku for Peter King and for the employees of Vice. But first, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. Did you catch the gold Donald Trump high tops? Yeah, of course. That the former president unveiled. Was it at sneaker con? Mm-hmm. Saw somebody paid $9,000 for a pair. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. I tried hooping in these, but all I could do was draw charges. <laughs> hmm. Thanks to Brad and Mark Mascalino for that one. If you want to consign these shoes to the footlocker of history, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I want to do two farewells with you. One happy, one not so happy. The happy one is to... NFL writer Peter King. Yeah. He announced this morning that he is retiring, or at least retiring from his column, which is now called Football Morning in America, but which you and I knew for years at SI as Monday Morning Quarterback. Yeah. Peter King, the sports writer who was writing deep into the night to give us not only nuggets about NFL, This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing in the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold Slurpee drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now. How about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores see app for full terms. All rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's huzzah, a toast to breakfast. NFL games that had just been played, but his craft beer recommendations, mm-hmm. his coffee order at Starbucks. Yep. Peter King seemed to be consuming an inordinate amount of coffee as he wrote these columns for us. <laughs> Got thousands of words to churn out. This isn't going to, you need something to keep you sharp at the computer. You know, yeah. Who among us is not consuming Insane amounts of coffee. Said in his column today that he started writing MMQB or at least a similar substance back in 1997 when Steve Robinson, an editor at SI, suggested he empty his notebook on Mondays. Hmm. 
which is a very internet-y thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. Old media says, no, what we want is a crafted piece about the game of the week where you give us the quarterback after the game and give us some details that you've hoovered up over the course of the week. Internet journalism ethics says, just give us everything. Yeah. Toss it all into the box because we will glom onto certain things and skip other things and that'll be great. It's interesting because Peter King was Sports Illustrated's big NFL writer in SI the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I feel he added this whole other layer to his career that is probably even bigger than the first layer by writing for the internet. Oh, for sure. I mean, dude, remember we talk about this. I too, I feel all the time. If I brought you some magazines from the nineties, you and I care about this stuff and, and, and read old pieces like this. And I just showed you the TOC from a 1997 issue of SI. You'd be like, who's that? Yeah. Who's that? Mm -hmm. Because as big as a lot of those people were, they're kind of consigned to this corner of journalism history. Peter King comes to the internet and says, I got it, man. I figured it out. Monday morning, I'm going to give you a column to read. It's going to be incredibly long. <laughs> I mean, we should we should say this as we wish him goodbye. That column was freaking huge. Yeah. But it was very smartly for the medium chopped up into all these little bits so you could scan it. Yeah, and 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 length was not length was an asset at that point in time. Our boss Bill did that too. I mean, how like who amongst us, I say again, did not use our use our work copier to print out these like 25 page columns and go read them on the toilet i mean this was before the era of iphones this was having your as close as you could have to come to you know having your computer with you all the time you just print out these long columns and bring them with you everywhere fold the pages fold the print out in half stick it in your back pocket take it on the subway you know and that was that's that's it, it was it was a the length was a real asset and a show of force in a way in the industry at that time. Sure. I get to write long. Cause remember we're coming out of the print era where word count is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Pages are finite. Space is finite. We got other people to a piece here, but Oh no, I'm going to come over to the internet and I'm going to go long. Yeah. And that feels like, you know, a big, big deal and very, very different from what we've been reading to that point. Yeah. He chopped up the column into bits. As I mentioned, there was lots of non football stuff in there or it was threaded through, mm -hmm. which felt very different than something you'd read in the pages of Sports Illustrated, especially mm -hmm. during that period. Obviously, nowhere near Bill in terms of literary quality, in terms of turning a phrase. Mm -hmm. Peter even says this when, when he got to Sports Illustrated, which was in 1989, that he felt like he was outclassed by the capital W writers who were at the magazine. Yeah. So he was going to work harder. He was going to put stuff in, hoover up notes, break news in a way that maybe those writery people weren't doing. Mm -hmm. And Monday morning quarterback was kind of the ultimate expression of that. Yeah. Here it all is, right? You wrote your mm -hmm. perfectly crafted feature that's 2,679 words, but look at this, baby. This is a big old thing that I got coming out and it's creating an audience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly Sports Illustrated had more writer writers like you, you know, that, that you're referring to than some outlets did at that point in time. But yeah, I mean, this is sort of the two ways the Internet has gone too. I mean, and, and, and Peter King really, I think, probably really foresaw that. I don't think he he's the intelligent, you know, he intellectually knew it, but that was you know just the. We all get to get to decide every time we click on something between information download and you know the 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 experience of a wonderful read and yeah I mean, he did his own thing. Think of this sometimes too. There were, there are these sports writers who have come along in history who have so much that they can't be contained by normal space constraints. Mm -hmm. In the seventies, Peter Gammons and Bob Ryan. And, you know, others at the Boston Globe were like this, mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, Will McDonough is probably in this category, too. Like, we just got to give him a whole page on Sunday. Yeah, because they've just got so much. Bill is like this a couple of decades later. Peter King was like this, mm -hmm. whether he's seeing the opportunity, of the Internet, as you say, or whether he's just like, I just got all this stuff. Yeah. 
here you go. I always remember the top of Monday morning quarterback, starting with Peter King being on the phone with a quarterback who's just won a game and is now on the team bus headed to the airport. Mm -hmm. That was a big deal. And it kind of tracked with how insider culture had changed football writing. Yeah. Adam Schefter was going to get the scoop increasingly. That's Mm -hmm. something Peter King would have competed for back in the old days. So Peter King would give you the guy. Yeah. Here is the quarterback five minutes after he wins a huge game. Yes. Here's the interview with him. That's how I'm competing in this new football writing world. The ultimate was when he went to Montana after the Patriots beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl and hung out with Tom Brady and Giselle mm-hmm. and got this interview with Brady who just, and it was just like, I remember reading that and be like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. was, I think it was in two parts because there was just so much material mm-hmm. about both the Super Bowl and Brady. And I, I think, and I don't think I'm imagining this, but the one Super Bowl I went to the locker room back in the Grantland days, it was Patriots Seahawks. And I'm happy to be corrected on this by Peter King himself, but I swear to God, I was walking out of the Patriots locker room and Peter King was talking to Tom Brady at his locker. Yeah. That would not have happened. Brian Curtis walked up. Hey, Tom, can I just get a second with you about the uh, winning the Super Bowl? No, that would have been a, a hard pass. <laughs> Peter King can do that. I also think back, dude, to conversations we've had about Sports Illustrated. Peter King figured something out about Sports Illustrated. He figured out how to do something for the web that was also a product that very much felt like SI. Yeah. Like classic between the covers SI. Mm-hmm. Right? This has reporting in it. This is not doodling or whatever the slurs were about internet sports writing back in the early aughts. This has reporting. This has uh, predictions. This has you know, notebook stuff in it still kind of baffled how SI didn't just say, okay, Peter King did this. Now it's everybody's responsibility here to create something like this. Yeah. However you do it, you got to figure out the way you're going to become an internet sports writer. Yep. As opposed to somebody who comes out with a feature about a game that happened four days ago. We need to figure this out collectively, but somehow it just didn't happen for SI. All right, not so great farewell, not great at all, in fact, is the farewell to Vice. Here's a sentence I didn't want to read. Vice will, quote, no longer publish content on vice.com. Which sounds pretty It's a new new way to say it, yeah. Ben Mullen at the New York Times reported that Vice Media was laying off several hundred of its more than 900 employees. As the business environment for digital media became increasingly precarious, Mullen writes, executives bet on big, elaborate content deals for clients like the cigarette manufacturer Philip Morris International and Antenna, a Greek media company. These all sound like copy-paste sentences from the end of a media company. (laughs) How do we think about the legacy of Vice? Oh, God, that's too hard. Let me (laughs) narrow it down for you. The journalists who were the beating hearts of vice muckraking and reporting in the recent times. Um, There's a lot of things. In a lot of ways, they were, they sort of set the rubric for media startups. Um, I guarantee that Nobody in our, well, in most of our adult careers launched a media website, or at least there's a 20 year run where I guarantee nobody launched a media website without the X, Y, X meets Y meets vice being on the pitch sheet. Yes. Um, they, I think in some ways really artfully threaded the needle between important substantive reporting and you can put quotes around that if you want or not and just sort of niche reporting um sort of bloggers mindset uh a very like 
open-armed ideology about what counts as news and what counts as, and it was, I guess, just sort of the con the intersection of content and news, right? Um, it has to be said that there's a million people out there and millions of people out there for whom when they think of ICE, they think of, um, you know, boots on the ground reporting and international war zones and like, you know, wild locales, uh, that early era of ICE video journalism um, was incredibly transformative to the way that we view it. I mean, we've sat on this show and, 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 you know, sung the praises of um, foreign correspondents from mostly from mainstream outlets time and time again, but, but it can't be overstated how much of just a, I mean, how jarring it was to go from the sort of institutional version of that to, you know, a guy I saw at a bar in Brooklyn is do, you know, has a scarf around his neck and he's doing that on the internet right now. Um, 100%. Uh, and, you know, not for nothing, but like, it, it, I'll, I'll turn it over to you after this, but not for nothing, but it's, it's um, in our lifetimes, there's very, I mean, it's all, it's almost, I can't even, you can count on one hand the number of times where anyone used journalism and cool in the same sentence. And four of those were probably all about <laughs> vice, you know? And, and, uh, as much as about we, you and me, buddy. Yeah, I'll tell as, you mu that. as much as you like to look back on the glory days of how much fun it would, would have been drinking with the staff of the New York Herald Tribune or whatever, I mean, that's, there's, there's just not much of that in, in this day and age. And, and, and vice certainly cracked that code. Yeah, Dick Shap was cool. Advice was cool. <laughs> That's a category I'd like to to join as one. I thought a little bit about Vice News Tonight, which employed uh -huh. some of our pals. Yeah. It was also a very interesting experiment in TV news and kind of adapting a very old form of journalism, much like you talk about foreign correspondence, to, to something that will appeal to younger people. Mm-hmm. And I also think with Vice, you know, when they when they publish pieces and investigations, how far the tentacles of their investigations reached. Yeah, I was thinking this week, just separately from from the news about Vice, I was like, man, I read some really good pieces a couple of years ago about scandals at the L.A. Times and the L.A. Times sports page. Where did I read that? And the answer turned out to be Vice. Oh yeah, among investigations carefully edited and researched and reported investigations about many, many other subjects. Also, when this news came down, vice posted a podcast, <laughs> a kind of final farewell pirate podcast in which writers and editors among them, Anna Merlin and Tim Marchman reflected <laughs> on what had just happened mm -hmm. and what their bosses had done. And, the more recent iterations of vice journalism, they must be, we talk about journalists who are at odds with the behavior of their corporate parents. Mm -hmm. Vice registered very, very high on the scale, may have been number one on the scale. Sure. As that final act proved, by the way, we should always have whenever one of these publications vaporizes itself or lays people off, we should absolutely have a mandatory podcast where the people sit around and swap stories and talk about what just happened. I think increasingly that'll be the norm. Um, I think there was a messenger pod or two. Yeah. And I don't think that we're in a world now where you really do any damage to your career by doing something like that. Right. I mean, especially, especially when we're talking about the corporate parent being some faceless investment firm or something, you know, I mean, you're not, you're not burning a, somebody who might go on to be executive editor at the LA times or something, you know, you're just, it's, it's, it's just a sort of faceless villain. So, um, yeah, I think that we'll see more and more of that for sure. Can we talk about the first person essay before we go? Oh, please. Because our week away was dominated by a couple of essays. Emily Gould was writing about divorce or not divorce. And Charlotte Cowles, who is the personal finance columnist for New York Mag, was writing about a scam which ended with her handing $50,000 in cash to a man in a car. This is an amazing story and involved 
impersonations of Amazon, the Federal Trade Commission, and the CIA. Mm -hmm. If you're one of the 14 people on journalism Twitter who has not read this story, I suggest you do immediately because it is fascinating. What do you think our fascination with stories like this is? Well, there's a true crime aspect to it, right? I mean, that's part of where we are in our culture right now. Uh, the scam thing is always, it's, 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 it's a personal thing in a lot of ways. We've all, we all encounter this all the time, whether or not we fall victim to it. Um, uh, but there's just a huge voyeuristic aspect to this too, right? I mean, I think the vast majority of responses that you heard and read about this piece were like, I can't believe that this is true. But if it's true, I can't believe that she agreed to, to publish this. Right. Mm -hmm. And to see and part of it, it's, it's it's a it's a situation that if we can't all directly sympathize with, we can we like understand the, the bare bones of it. Right. I mean, you can sympathize with it in some general way. Um, uh, and to watch it play out in <laughs> in horror, it's uh, it's, you know, I, I, I think the connection is pretty obvious. It's interesting too. You mentioned the um, true crime boomlet we've had now over the last what is it now decade plus. Mm -hmm. This is a particularly interesting kind of true crime because when you read a piece like this, you you know the outcome at the beginning. You know it's a scam. So mm -hmm. as you're reading it, it's like reading a mystery from back to front, where you can you look well, for the clues as you go along. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, see, look, 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 see, that seems shady when that person said that, you know, they knew the last four digits of her social security. Oh, yeah, see that? Like, you point out the things because you know how the thing ends. Yes. And then there is a just like, just like me aspect, especially for people in our business here. Like, oh, wait, this person is a journalist. Well, I mean, you know how it's going to end, but you also kind of don't believe it could possibly go the direction that you think it's going to go. You expect there to be some wild yeah. mitigating circumstances or whatever, how the story plays out is, is, is really what's intriguing, but you're right. And then also it's, there's the, the, the intra journalism piece of it too. Got some only in journalism for you. Uh, Matt McKenna sent in the word defang. I don't believe we've had defang in this feature. Before. We must have had defang. Mr. Defang Trump is, defang defang. is hall of fame. <laughs> <laughs> the Hall of Fame. Mr. Trump has sought to defang Ms. Haley's criticism, the New York Times wrote. Speaking of which, in the aftermath of the South Carolina primary over the weekend, we had a lot of only in journalism in some of the deadline writing. Nikki Haley's most ardent supporters, the New mm -hmm. York Times noted, an ebullient Mr. Trump took the stage. Boolean is also a great only in journalism word. And I got this one from Matt Jennings on threads. Sent another story from the New York Times. Sorry, New York Times to pick on you in this feature, but you know, you are the only paper left in the United States of America, besides a few others. Uh, this is a New York Times sentence. In Sunday's New York Times story about the border between Finland and Russia, Matt Jennings writes, Belarus is described as a quote, veritable satrapy of moscow what you remember satrap was an absolute go-to word at the sat prep course at pascal high yes okay yeah so can i give you a veritable satrapy well, satrapy is what he governs over that well belarus is the satrapy in this oh it, it instruction. Okay. So I looked this up, dude, because I could have given you after our SAT prep course experience that the Satrap was a kind of ruler. Yeah. Defined as the governor or of a province in ancient Persia. And Wikipedia tells us the modern uses is pejorative and refers to any subordinate or local ruler, usually with unfavorable connotations of corruption. Hmm. A veritable Satrapy. Satrapy. Okay. I think that's a it's a crossword word too, but it really not as con, considering it has so many common letters, not quite as not not nearly as common as you might think. All right, let's go to a feature which is always a veritable satrapy. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah, I mean that David in terms of both 
corruption and ruling a very small don't local start space. corruption rumors with this i don't do nearly <laughs> well enough for people to also think that i'm being that i've corrupted this process somehow fair enough david is as clean as a whistle there's no scandal here last monday's headline about overpriced airport snacks was a lack of checks and balances today's headline comes to us from ryan snyder it's from the times as well it's a review of the new j-lo movie david okay being released in conjunction with a JLo album. I'll give you some mild guidance here. Imagine that on screen we are encountering JLo. Here she is, we might be thinking. What was the New York Times' strained pun headline? Here's Jenny. Uh, here, uh, J- you want to you want to stick with JLo, and in fact, that's how oh, it starts. JLo. Oh, is it like hello? Um, oh, there. J. Give you a little it's more. Introducing here. J- her. J. Lo and. Oh, J. Lo and behold. J. Lo, J. Lo and behold. <laughs> I can get that out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Our old friend Wesley Morris. The byline on that one. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Braction Magic. By Brian Waters. Did you do anything fun during your week of rest and recuperation? No, just rested and recuperated. Nothing at all. Uh, I'm sorry, I did some stuff. I did some stuff. Nothing too exciting, though. What about you? Uh, two things. I took my 11-year-old son, my newly 11-year-old Dang. son, to Legoland for his birthday. Like it, like the, like the leg, is it like a mall store sort of Legoland, that place? No, the, the theme park, Legoland, the theme park. So I've been to, I went to Legoland in like a giant, in like the, uh, the, whatever it's called mall, the, the, the Americana mall over here in New Jersey. <laughs> there's a movie theater and a couple of, there's like a train you can ride on, but this is not a theme park. No, that's the Chili's two of Legolands. This yeah. is the theme park with rides and hotels, Lego themed hotels where you walk in and they're just ball pits of legos everywhere you go wow how was it it was amazing but i gotta tell you and i think you probably had this experience traveling with small kids too Mm -hmm. you can go anywhere you can go to legoland in carlsbad california you can march the kids across europe and the thing that they will remember inevitably the one thing about any trip is the breakfast buffet yeah the cheapo breakfast buffet and maybe you mm-hmm. and i have not been taking our kids to golden corral quite enough to just appreciate what a buffet is yeah but i swear we my wife and i've been on so many vacations with the kids and the they're always like oh wait i remember that hotel that had the buffet <laughs> like rick steves himself could have materialized and you know <laughs> led us through european capitals and they would remember the sausage and waffles and pancakes that they could get in any amount that's number one. Number two is part two of uh, my son Owen's birthday. We had a bounce house here. Ah. Now here, you'll relate to this. Fifth grade bounce house. You're kind of at the edge of the bounce house era of your life. Sure. Remember when you and I. No, when you say age? you relate to this. Don't act. I mean, we were not. We, I didn't have bounce houses when I was growing up. As a parent, I relate to this. There's okay. We didn't have bounce houses. But we did it like the McDonald's Playland and oh, yeah. you know the Chuck E. Ball Cheese pits. thing. And remember, yeah, you got to late elementary school and you're like, this is really fun. But you're kind of looking around at the other kids in the ball pit and you're like, I feel like I'm at the end of something. Mm-hmm. One of your first mortality moments in life is like, I'm too big for the for yeah. the Playland. I'm too big for the bounce house. Mm-hmm. I could feel that, or at least intuit that a little bit from my son and his friends. Also, it just turns out like if you're a fifth grader and you're a bounce house, things are just way more violent than they were when you were a second grader in a bounce Mm -hmm. house. Just felt like an injury was seconds away. We got we got through clean. But you're just like, oh my gosh, we're big kids now. Oh yeah. And we're not just like, oh, you first down the slide, please. We're like, oh, 18 of us are going down the slide together. And we are gonna have this absolute crash at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Anyway, maybe just my pangs of mortality, but I was like, God, I remember when I was like, go to the playground at the park or the showbiz Chuck E. Cheese style pizza place and be like, you know, I'm just a little old for this. I want to enjoy this. I want to embrace this, but I, I can't. 
Yeah. Something in me is changing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my rest and recuperation from wellness week. As you imagine from those two experiences, not a lot of rest and recuperation was happening, but it was a good time. All right. Coming Thursday on this podcast, Sean Fennessy is going to be here. Talk about his experiences at Pitchfork. We're going to talk about the 1993 campaign doc, The War Room. And then on Monday, Shoemaker and I return with more lukewarm takes about the media. More bounce, that, more bounce castle, more more bounce house <laughs> content. Where do all these We're things come from, by the way? How is it like what it's it's like a hundred bucks to get a bounce castle in your backyard? When we were kids, it would have cost like our parents would have had to like oh. sell their car to get us something. Imagine having something like that at your house. It was completely your- unobtainable. Yeah, absolutely. Magic anyway. a magic phone that shows you movies would have been less inconceivable than a bounce castle in your backyard. Yeah. You can just have this? I just got to beg enough for it? <laughs> anyway. See you later, dude. See you, Brian.